Today on Blue 58, goodbye to the initial 53-man roster. Hello, whatever comes after the initial 53-man roster. The Packers are making tweaks to their roster, whatever you call it, to optimize their team, but they're also getting caught up in rumors about others. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. The Packers have moved on from their initial 53-man roster, continuing to tweak things as they will do throughout the regular season. And of course, we knew this was coming. Just given how the roster was structured, they were going to have to make a couple of moves. You need a long snapper unless you really are going to make an immense vote of confidence in your offense that we're not going to need one for punts and we're just going to go for two every time on the numerous touchdowns we're going to score. I, obviously, that's not the case. They're going to have to make some moves to get their their long snapper situation sorted out. But in the meantime, they've also made a couple more tweaks in the form of roster or waiver claims that add immediately to their 53-man roster, necessitating the release of a couple guys. The releases, first and foremost, are Tariq Carpenter and Jonathan Ford, both of whom I would expect back on the practice squad at some point. Uh, maybe. I can't say with 100% certainty that that's going to happen, but I would expect that they are going to get looks in Green Bay, which of course is going to be cruel for the guys who are not only cut from the 53 and then resigned to the practice squad, but then are going to get released from the practice squad virtually immediately. The NFL is a cold business, and especially cold at this time of year. In any case, Carpenter and Ford are gone for right now. In their place, the Packers claim Zane Anderson and Ben Sims. One after another here. Let's go Zane Anderson first claimed on waivers after he was released by the Buffalo Bills. 6'2", 206 pounds, undrafted in 2021 out of BYU. He played 2021 and 2022 with the Kansas City Chiefs. 110 snaps on special teams over two years. Depending who you asked, he played either one or zero snaps on defense. One snap on defense, according to Pro Football Focus, zero according to Pro Football Reference, and that's just because they count things slightly differently. Technically, it's zero snaps because the one snaps PFF credits him with playing was actually on a fake punt or some other kind of punt that turned into an offensive play. When that happens, they turn your rep as a punt return guy into a rep as a defensive player. I'm not exactly sure why they do it that way. I think it's an offensive play, but in any case, that's what they did. The point is he does not really play on defense. He was in camp with the Bills this summer doing defensive things for them. Anyhow, a, or a special teams thing for them because he is a special teams player and a good athlete on top of that. 8-2-6 relative athletic score, 4-4-4 in the 40-yard dash. His overall RAS number is dragged down by the bench press and by having a bad vertical leap. I would not get too hung up on worrying about th- those things for a safety, particularly the the bench. Vertical leap is often a question of just training, too. A lot of guys don't know how to practice the vertical leap. And if you want to put up some better combine numbers yourself, you can actually train yourself to squeeze a few more inches out of your vertical leap just by altering your technique slightly. And that's going to bump you way up theoretical draft boards just by practicing it. And a lot of guys just don't. But suffice it to say, not great leaping numbers, but that's not something we're overly concerned about as he's running down to cover kicks on kickoff or punt or serving as the personal protector on the punt team, which is something he did in Buffalo as well. As of when I'm recording this, it's about 20 after 1 on Thursday afternoon, August 31st. The corresponding roster move to his signing, or waiver claim I guess, has not been announced. I suspect it's going to be a safety, and if you're looking at a safety that's exclusively a special teamer, 
Dallin Levitt could be in some danger. We'll see if I end up being right. This part of the podcast is going to date pretty quickly, uh, but we are going to get a corresponding roster move at some point. We'll figure out exactly what that is when it happens. The other claim the Packers made here, the other successful claim the Packers made here, we should add more on that in a second, but their second claim was Ben Sims, a six foot five, 250 pound undrafted tight end out of Baylor. Played with the Vikings throughout the summer after signing with them after the 2023 NFL draft. Was quite successful at Baylor, I might add. He had several records uh, for you know catches and touchdown receptions as a tight end there. Again, signed with the Vikings as an undrafted free agent. Was paid quite a bit of guaranteed money for the Vikings. More, I think, in his contract for, for an undrafted free agent than the Packers paid their entire undrafted free agent class. Just nothing right or wrong with that, just different approaches. A little bit surprising that the Vikings would end up cutting him considering their investment. Maybe they just thought they were going to end up getting him on special teams. But in any case, he is in Green Bay. A good athlete. 8-4-0 relative athletic score, 4-5-8, 40-yard dash. Faster just barely than Luke Musgrave by like three hundredths of a second. Overall, I think considering him a poor man's Luke Musgrave is basically a fair comparison. Consider this line from a scouting report by Dane Brugler in The Beast this spring. Quote, overall, Sims is a balanced athlete with steady hands, but he isn't a threat after the catch and needs to turn his losses into stalemates as an NFL blocker. End quote. Now, people I've talked to and, you know, read about since then have gone a little bit in a different direction in terms of how they described what he did with the Vikings in the preseason saying that he was more of a blocker, more of a traditional Y tight end. Come to your own conclusion there. Uh, You've got perspectives on both sides. He's a good athlete. He's a big guy. He'll do stuff on special teams. He'll be the number, depending how you count, four tight end, number three traditional tight end right now. A little bit smaller, a little bit slower than Luke Musgrave, but by and large, the same skill set. Now, I said the second successful claim the Packers made on waivers because there was a third claim that they attempted but were not successful. Uh, The Packers attempted to claim former Miami Dolphins wide receiver Elijah Higgins. He ends up going to the uh, Arizona Cardinals. They are further up in waiver priority than the Packers are. But the Packers put out a feeler trying to get Higgins into camp. Well, not into camp, into onto their active roster uh, after cutdowns came through. Higgins, a sixth-round pick out of Stanford this spring, 8.94 relative athletic score. Big guy, 6'3", 235-pound receiver. Basically a receiver-tight-end hybrid and convincingly a Packers type with that 6'3", 235-pound frame. Essentially a clone of Dre Miller, a wide receiver-tight-end hybrid that they had in camp this year. Did not end up on the practice squad, but I think you can see what the Packers are going for here. Now, the Packers are unsuccessful, so... Not a lot to talk about in the short term, but I do think it does raise two questions here. First, who would have gotten moved off the roster if the claim went through? And second, will we see Higgins in Green Bay at any point this season or beyond? To the first question, we were discussing this in the Power Sweeps Discord server earlier this morning. The popular name there among our internal discussions was Dontavion Wicks. He was mentioned as a potential injured reserve candidate prior to the cuts to the 53-man roster, and if the Packers had to submit their roster and get everybody through and Wicks was on that roster, the Packers could have IR'd him and just given him some time to fully heal up while they take a look at what Higgins can do. The other possibility is that Malik Heath, after going through all that he went through in training camp, would have gotten the ax. It's possible he is the sixth of six wide receivers on the depth chart right now. 
that seems less likely. It might have been Samori Ture, but I'd, it's hard to imagine, I guess is my point, that the Packers would carry seven wide receivers at this point in, in the season. There's just really no need for that, although it does seem like they're probably going to end up playing receivers on special teams more than they did last year under Rich Pisaccia. To the second question, I think the, f- the fact that the Packers put in a waiver claim on Higgins should put a little flag by his name in your mind, just to, to keep an eye on if he should be released by the Cardinals at any point in the future. It's possible that the Packers do want to sign him to their practice squad. If he's released outright by the Cardinals and passes through waivers, then they can sign him to their practice squad, which is something they'd probably be interested in doing And if they were interested enough in him that they would have put him on the 53 right away. In any case, I don't think we can forget about the name Elijah Higgins, but just write it down on a mental post-it note and stick it in the back of your mind for a while. The other big story coming out of the out of Green Bay after well after 53 the 53-man roster was announced was that the Packers were considered the mystery team involved in the Jonathan Taylor conversation going on in Indianapolis. If you haven't been following along throughout that offseason saga, essentially what's happened is that Taylor is approaching the end of his contract with the Colts and wants to be re-signed. He says, I've been a great player for you. I want to be paid accordingly. And the Colts have said no. Then he said, I would like to be traded. They also said, well, sure, I guess, take a look, but we think you're too valuable to trade. So we're going to ask for the moon if anybody decides to to explore that, which kind of made apparently Jonathan Taylor even more frustrated. And he would understand why that is. You're saying, he's saying, I'm super valuable to you, pay me accordingly. And they say no. And then he says, okay, trade me. And they say, yes, but you're so valuable to us that we won't trade you unless they give us the moon. Do you see how there might be some frustrating cognitive dissonance there for Jonathan Taylor? You say, I'm not valuable enough to pay, but I'm too valuable to let leave for anything other than a king's ransom where do I factor in here? Where does what I want factor in? I would be frustrated too. Ultimately, he did get permission to seek a trade. The Dolphins were the leading candidate to receive his services there, along with a supposed mystery team, which has turned out to be the Packers. Now, apparently, according to some sources, not my sources, but some sources reporting out there, it never got more involved than a Packers scout talking to someone with the Colts. My impression is that this is a story that has come out of Colts camp. They let Taylor seek a trade. Now they are leaking things on their end saying, yeah, these were the teams that were interested that were calling, making it look at least a little bit from their end like they, we're trying here, we're looking at options, uh, but it doesn't seem like things ever got terribly far with the Packers. I take issue with other reporting, especially headlines now that are saying that the Packers were quote unquote in talks with the Colts about Taylor. That seems like a little bit of a stretch. It doesn't really sound like there was any substantive conversations about Taylor coming to Green Bay or the Packers offering any kind of trade compensation for for Taylor. But it's not zero interest either. You can't really say the Packers were in talks or you could say they were technically in talks, given that they, they did at least have a cursory conversation about Taylor. So the, it's it's not zero. The, their level of interest in acquiring Jonathan Taylor is not zero. And as we say so frequently this time of year, nothing is nothing. So I think we should at least talk through it. Let's look at this at bo- from both sides. Why would it be worth considering trading for Taylor? And then maybe why might it be a bad idea? First and foremost, Jonathan Taylor is a good player. That seems to be lost a lot in a lot of roster conversations about 
you know, optimization, what's the ideal way to build a team. I think especially among some of my friends in the analytics community who whether or not players are good seems to matter less sometimes than what position they play within the optimal analytics structure structure for a roster. You can still win with different kinds of good players. Yeah, running back might not be as valuable as some other positions, but adding a good player to your team is a good thing to do. Getting good players for your, your roster is the goal here, and he is a good one. So let's not forget that Jonathan Taylor is actually good among conversations about optimization, optimization and things like that. More appropriately, or more specifically to the Packers, they have some uncertainty at running back next year. Aaron Jones' cap hit is going to go way up. A.J. Dillon is a free agent. And beyond that, you've got Emmanuel Wilson and Patrick Taylor. You could use some help at running back, if not right this second, a little ways down the road. It's also a good idea to add more talent to help your young talent. I don't know if you've heard, but the Packers have a fairly young roster. I believe they are the youngest in the NFL, at least as when the rosters became official on Tuesday afternoon. They were the youngest team in the entire NFL by average age, like 24.9 years or, or something like that. Adding a good player is only going to help those other young players on their way to becoming good players because it lowers the pressure on them. In addition, the Packers have a really good offensive line. Adding a, well, maybe not a really good offensive line, but they have a talented, they have a strong offensive line overall. I think that's fair. Let's put it that way. They have a strong offensive line overall. They may not be the best in the league. They are far from the worst in the league. Adding that to a good running back, which they've already done in Aaron Jones, adding Jonathan Taylor to that seems like a recipe for success. It seems like you could do some good things there. It's not insane to want to add Jonathan Taylor. But there are some downsides there too. First, there's the the thing that I always bring up when it comes to trades, the double cost of a trade. You have to pay to get him, and then you have to pay to keep him. The Packers are in a situation where they're just going to be getting free from a an expensive running back contract in Aaron Jones if you assume that they're going to cut him next year. And I guess as I've said on this podcast before, I don't know if we can assume that necessarily given how they've handled things. Ideally, yes, you would probably not be paying a running back going into his age 30 season what the Packers figure to be paying Aaron Jones next year, but you never know. Ideally, though, you're not going to be paying a running back, you know, whatever it is, $17 million in cap space next year. If the Packers are just getting out of that, why would you want to add another heavy compensation running back contract to your books just as you're getting out of you know your your cap frustration era right now? The double compensation thing is is a problem. All of his issues with the Colts hinge on salary, so you are going to have to extend him, and then you're also going to have to pay to get him. And that aspect is another problem here. What would the Packers even trade? Theoretically, the Packers have two first-round picks next year. Assuming Aaron Rodgers plays 65% of snaps for the Jets this year, the Packers are going to get the Jets' first-round pick. I don't want to give up either of the first-round picks that the Packers are going to have for a running back who's already got, who's already played several NFL seasons and is currently on the physically unable to perform list to the extent that you want to believe that he's actually unable to perform for the Colts right now. Would the Colts take a second-round pick? I'm not sure I'm entirely excited about that either, though I'd feel better about that than giving up a first-round pick. And if the Packers do have two first-round picks, well, then maybe you're in a conversation there. If you're giving up players, do you give up somebody like Yash Nyman? Would the Colts take Yash Nyman? Would you give up A.J. Dillon? Would you do both of them together? 
Would you nuke your locker room and trade Aaron Jones? Probably the closest thing to the overall leader of the locker room right now. I'm not sure there's a compensation package that really makes a ton of sense for the Packers there. There's the other issue of production. Now, we talked about how important it is to get good players, and it is. But I think there is an aspect of needing to have the running back conversation here, too. You can probably duplicate his production with volume. I have noticed a subtle shift about the conversation or around the conversations about running backs mattering or not mattering. People don't seem to describe it as a one-to-one replacement for elite players anymore, just getting a bunch of decent running backs. Nobody seems to really say, well, you can find whatever player, an Aaron Jones or a star running back in undrafted free agency anymore or whatever. Now it seems to be more along the lines of you could get 80% of the production of an elite running back in day three of the draft, which is different in, I think, a significant way. But even if you take issues with the particulars, I think the overall thrust is true. Even if you don't get all your production from one running back, you can probably get fairly comparable production or three quarters to 80% of the same production with a couple pretty good backs. I think that is worth remembering. Overall, I think the bottom line here is that it's funny that we got to the should the Packers trade for blank player so early this year because we have those kind of conversations each and every season. It's funny that it's just happening right now, here at the end of August. That's how it's going to go. Sooner or later, we're going to get into trade discussions with the Packers. We just happen to have landed on one here at the end of August. Wanted to close out today by just giving a quick overview of a few of the things that we're going to be tracking at thepowersweep.com this year. We do what I've taken to calling custom stats at thepowersweep.com. Just a few things that we track either by compiling stats from elsewhere into one kind of database or keep track of by ourselves. They're not advanced stats. We're not doing advanced math or anything like that. It's just a, a way to give us give you a perspective on the team that you might not find anywhere else. Uh, But there are four big areas that I want to keep track of each and every year. The first is Jordan Love's adjusted net yards per attempt over time. This has been one of my favorite projects to run with Aaron Rodgers. Over the past few years, we've kept trailing average um, compilations of his adjusted net yards per attempt numbers over four, eight, and 16 game chunks. We're going to bump it up to 17 because there's 17 games in a regular season now. Uh, we're going to do the same for Jordan Love. Basically, one, we want to see where he's trending over time in this one specific metric uh, that relates to quarterback performance. Why adjusted net yards per attempt? I think it is the best single number for gauging quarterback performance. It's not perfect, but no single number is. But this one factors in your yards per attempt, uh, how often you're completing passes, how often you're throwing touchdowns, how often you're throwing interceptions. It's a pretty easy number to understand. And it basically scales like one to 10. Uh, A guy who's an elite quarterback is going to be around eight or so. You could go higher, you could go a little lower, but that's usually going to be about where your league leader is going to be. I think it makes sense to keep track of Jordan Love's numbers there over time. And for this season, at least, we're going to keep track of where he compares to Aaron Rodgers at the same point in his career. At some point, we're going to have to divorce Jordan Love from the Aaron Rodgers conversation and just let him be Jordan Love. But I think there is some value to comparing him to where Aaron Rodgers was at the same point in his career, in part because he's taking over as the starter in roughly the same spot that Aaron Rodgers was, by and large. Secondly, we're going to be tracking explosive plays again this year. We've done that every year. 
Uh, runs of 12 yards or more and passes of 16 yards or more are considered explosive plays by a lot of different NFL teams. Now, you will get some different numbers. Some people say it's 20 yards uh, for all plays. Some people will say a 15-yard run or a 20-yard pass. Mike Pettin, I think, lowered it down to 10 yards for a run and 15 yards for a pass. But we use 12 and 16 because that's what Mike Ayers, one of the Packers, analytics guys from back in the early 2000s used when he started studying this. And I know of a few other NFL teams that use those marks uh, for measuring their explosive plays on a year-in and year-out basis, a week-in and week-out basis. So we're just going to do the same thing there. I figure if it's good enough for other NFL teams, it's good enough for us to track. Uh, Last year, the Packers had 108 explosive plays as a team that was actually down from each of the previous two years. Uh, In 2020, they had 111. In 2021, they had 112. Last year, they were down to just 108, which I think tracks with our overall feelings about the Packers' offense from last year. Just not quite as explosive as they were in the past. Flipping over to defense, we're going to keep an eye kind of together on one page on three separate pass rushing stats. Pressure rate, uh, pressure rate on true pass pass sets, and production ratio. Pressure rate is how often you are getting a pressure on your pass rushes. So if you get one pressure, a hit, hurry, or sack in 10 pass rushes, you have a 10% pressure rate. That number comes from Pro Football Focus. We'll be using their charting numbers on that. We're also going to be using their numbers on pressure rates on true pass sets. This is something that they also track to kind of get an idea how you're doing on I think what they would describe essentially as actual passing plays. So they take all of the passing plays that a team runs, and then they subtract out uh, passing plays that are play action or bootlegs or screens. Plays where a pass rusher's ability to get to the passer is going to be affected by things out of his control. Consider if you are a left defensive end or left outside linebacker, rushing against the right tackle and the quarterback bootlegs toward left tackle away from you, it's going to be harder for you to get a pressure on the quarterback in a situation like that than it would be if he was just doing a straight drop back. And it is something that is entirely out of your control. It's going to be harder for you to get a pressure, but it's not because you're not doing a good job getting past your blocker or the blocker is just handling you or whatever. It's because the quarterback ran away from you before you could really do anything at all. Screen passes are the same sort of deal. Play action passes, it's easier to get pressure sometimes because the quarterback is going to hold on to the ball longer. So just the straight drop back passes, how often are you beating the guy in front of you? We're going to be tracking that this year as well. Production ratio is one that we track for all of our our draft coverage, and it's worth continuing into the regular season. This is developed by Pat Kerwin. We talk about it, or we've discussed it in connection to the book Take Your Eye Off the Ball again and again over the years, but basically it's how often you're getting a sack or tackle per lo- for loss per game. You add up sacks and tackles for loss, you divide it by the number of games played, it should give you a pretty good idea of how a guy is affecting plays in the opposing backfield. You want a ratio of at least one to one uh, sacks and tackles for loss per game. So every game you play, you want either one of those. Elite guys tend to have like one and a quarter to one and a half or better. His first year with the Packers, Zadarius Smith was well over two, one of the best seasons we've ever recorded in the time that you have a data available to measure things like sacks and tackles for loss. It's, I think, more of a curiosity at this point than a truly accurate measure of how productive a guy is being because it, it can be manipulated like all stats can in ways that 
don't necessarily reflect what a guy is doing. But over time, it does give you, I think, an idea of who your good pass rushers and who your bad pass rushers are. Finally, on defense, we're going to be tracking ball hawks again. Ball hawks are plays on the ball. The first person I saw refer to this as an actual metric was Bob McGinn, uh, then of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's all your plays on the ball on defense. So passes defensed, interceptions, sacks, and forced fumbles. Who is getting the most of those? It should kind of give a reflection of your overall defensive success. There have been some changes in this number over the years. Generally speaking, the Packers, Ballhawks as a team have trended down since about 2009 or so, dating back to the start of the, the Dom Capers era. It's just been harder for defenses to make plays on the ball as the, the NFL has really changed to a more quick passing game than a, than a deep passing game. Nevertheless, the more plays that your defense makes on the ball, the better your defense tends to perform. Last year, the Packers saw a significant drop-off in their ball hawks from 2021. They were at 140 in 2021. That dropped down to 126 as a team in 2022. That's lower than all but one year of the Mike Pettin era, if you're looking for a comparison there. We are making one change to something that we are tracking this year. As of right now, I'm not planning to do any Packers polling this year, so our Twitter polls are going to be, be going away for this year. Honestly, it's just a, an availability of technology issue. Uh, I'm not confident in our ability to conduct polls via Twitter throughout the entire NFL season, just given how that site seems to be operating right now. And I haven't found a good enough replacement to make me feel confident that this is something that we could reliably do on a week-in, week-out basis. And to be completely honest, there were some significant vulnerabilities in the process as it stood. Given that it's not really a super scientific poll, it, it varies a lot depending on just who's online when we have to happen to be running the poll. I think this is just something we need to discontinue for right now unless we can get some sort of replacement here. If you've got an idea in mind, let me know. I'm happy to hear it. But things like SurveyMonkey um, and a couple of the other popular polling options out there look like they are probably too cost prohibitive for what we would need to do. And it's going to be difficult to get it to people anyway. So unfortunately, it looks like that's something that we're just going to have to let go of for this year. I'm bummed. It's not ideal. But um, it, you can't do everything all of the time. And it takes something off my plate that I don't have to do. Uh, and I can put something else in there. And as I, I frequently tell my wife, I'm just hurting for things to do. Like I, I just never have uh, enough things to do. So why not just keep adding more as I, as I free up some more time here by taking at least one part of doing Blue 58 and the power sweep off my plate. In any case, that's what we're going to be tracking this year. I look forward to offering those things to you throughout the season. We'll refer to them often, and uh, they will be available for your consumption at your leisure at thepowersweep.com. So hope you enjoy tracking those things along with us throughout the 2023 NFL season. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode or any episode of Blue 58 with someone you would think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having around the Green Bay Packers, which in turn should make all of us, me included, smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.